Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. Everywhere you look these days, John, sports networks are re-airing old games. Uh, They're starting with the classics, but in a few weeks, the well will be running dry and they'll be replaying the butt fumble game. Uh, I'm curious, John, have you stopped and watched any old games these last few weeks, or is life too short to rewatch old sporting events? Yeah, I, I, I'm not that big on rewatching entire games, frankly, but I have been focusing a little bit on MLB Network is showing some 1960s, 1970s baseball from when I was a mm. kid, and those okay. are cool. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that Fernando Valenzuela's Fernando Mania phase, pitching for the Dodgers, that was something like eight complete game shutouts by a 21-year-old, 1981, and like 25 starts. Um, that has stood the test of time, but – Five years earlier, the meteor that landed on baseball earth was a guy named Mark the Bird Fidrich, a tiger pitcher with a goofy grin. He had this infectious, larger-than-life personality, and I think he's long forgotten. Um, I remember he was even on the cover of Sports Illustrated with Sesame Street's Big Bird. There's two (laughs) two big happy blondes, basically. Um, 24 complete games and 29 starts, which is unimaginable now, obviously. Um, And an extra 10,000, 15,000 people in Tiger Stadium stands for each game. I remember like uh, the – I think it was Monday night and Saturday game of the week – nationally was just one game and the Tigers and the network sort of maneuvered it so that he would only pitch on those days because everybody in the country wanted to see him. Um, so I enjoyed some of uh, the network's uh, Fidrich game they showed uh, even more so because they picked the game where he beat the Yankees. So it was a, it was a win-win. Um, <laughs> and all this is fantastic fuel for like get off my lawn sentiments. You know, the batters tend to get in the batter's box and stay there for the duration at bat. You know, <laughs> damn it. Those were the days. Right. Um, and one other one I saw, like it's the last of its kind for sure, but it's a 2009 perfect game they showed by Mar- Mark Burley of the White Sox. Um, he looked like a teenage boy at the carnival on the boardwalk with his best girl, you know, where the kid is handed some softballs and he flings one after another at those milk cartons with a dead weight base that has crushed a lot of dreams over the years. Um, <laughs> one after another, no waiting time, you know, no wasted time involved at all. I mean, for Burley anyway. Right. Oh, so that's interesting. So we're you and I are on a similar wavelengths uh, on two fronts that uh, 
I also am not that interested in watching full old games. That's uh, that's kind of a lot. And uh, the other thing is that uh, baseball has, is the one thing that uh, has ha- has gotten me sucked in just a little bit, uh, mostly because uh, our one-time guest, Don Van Natta, did recent, he recently shared on Twitter the YouTube video of the full Kirk Gibson at bat from the yes. 1988 World mm-hmm. Series. So I've seen the home run replayed a hundred times since it happened, but the full at bat, I don't think I've watched that since the night that it occurred. And it's just amazing, every little element of it and how Vin Scully sets the scene. You know, from the moment Gibson comes out of the dugout, he tells you everything you need to know. Even if you didn't know any of the story leading up to that, he lays it all out for you piece by piece as the at-bat goes along. Uh, just fantastic and well well worth uh, the nine minutes or so that that uh, YouTube video lasts. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think there's a single baseball game in history, not, not even one in which my Phillies clinch the World Series, that I'd have the patience to watch from start to finish. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of that stuff out there now in every sport uh, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, you know, shockingly enough, uh, that Gibson game, I was in a bar at the time, a crowded bar. <laughs> right. And I, what I, me- I remember so vividly is that I seem to be the only one watching that at bat so intently. You know, it was not a local team, obviously. Right. And um, I remember foul ball after foul ball after foul ball. Yep. And uh, Mike Davis was the runner, I believe, in first Correct. base. Yep. He stole the base in like you know, after like six or seven foul balls, I think it was weird. It was like, it was, uh, there were about four fouls and maybe three pickoff yeah. attempts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, clearly he decided, they decided he wasn't going to go. And then it went on so long. He finally went and then he hits it. And I'm like jumping in the bar and uh, it's a really crowded bar and people looking at me like, what, you know, what the heck's going on? I'm like, <laughs> look at the screen. I mean, geez, I, like I said, I know it's not the Mets or the Yankees or whatever, but I mean, come on, this is history. So uh, what's that 30 years ago? So I guess it was history. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it, 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 it absolutely holds up so all right well thank you to everyone uh, for joining us for episode number 85 of gamble on Uh, and yes this is a new episode not a replay of a classic from 2018 Uh, if you missed any of those classics though any of our previous 84 episodes they're all available on soundcloud itunes apple podcasts and spotify please subscribe rate and review yeah, and Eric, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by award-winning veteran horse racing writer Bill Finley. Uh, he's going to talk about a sport that hasn't completely stopped in the face of the COVID-19 crisis, although mostly so, uh, and also a sport that recently was mired in scandal that faces a lot of questions and challenges moving forward, really. Um, but first, it's been a somewhat busy news week again in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. going to cover four stories this week instead of the typical three, and we start with a story we could have squeezed in last week but didn't make room for it, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee signing the state's sports betting bill into law last Wednesday. Uh, It's always big news when a new state enters the sports betting mix, especially given what's going on with legislative stallouts this year, but... This one was as minor as a new state legalizing could be because of how limited the betting is. It will be at tribal casinos only and no mobile betting. Uh, The map is now being filled in a bit in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but Oregon's setup isn't much better than Washington's as it's also available only at a few tribal locations and there's a single mobile betting app from the Oregon Lottery that has a monopoly. Uh, Still, John, does this count as progress, adding sports betting at some of the 35 tribal locations in Washington? 
Uh, well, uh, let's see. I'm trying to look on the bright side here, right? I mean, none of the Vegas stock casinos in the state of Washington are actually in, you know, Seattle, obviously. Um, but some are only an hour or two away, and I've spent enough enough time out west to know that's not considered such a schlep, really, <laughs> for right. for those people. Um, Washington is ahead of, say, North Carolina. You know, they legalize but haven't implemented legal sports betting at a few Indian casinos located as far west, like a couple of hundred miles west of the main population of the state as you can get, and still be in North. Carolina. So Washington beats that. Um, but there's a large population of sports fans in Seattle itself. And Seattle is a very underrated sports town. You know, I, I've been to all of them, obviously. So uh, I think I can say that. And uh, I'm going to prove it with this one. Um, one of my favorite memories covering the NBA came in the mid-1990s. Uh, the Nets happened to be in Seattle the morning that the league announced that Derek Coleman and Kenny Anderson had been chosen to start in the All-Star game for the East. I think it was the first time the Nets ever had a player voted in to start in the All-Star game. Um, so we dutifully interviewed both of them. We had solid early edition stories for the next day's newspaper. Remember, this is just before the Internet took over the world. Right. Um, so the Nets played the Sonics that night. Um, the crowd was rocking. I mean, really rocking. Then Coleman gets riled up by a foul call and gets a technical foul. So, you know, I mean, at that point, um, the, the Sonics fans smell blood and they are so loud. Then he draws a second technical for complaining about it and he's ejected. The place absolutely erupts. Uh, DC, of course, sarcastically waves his arms to encourage him to get louder. And boy, did they comply. So he gets to, he gets to the baseline and, and nears the tunnel to the locker room that he's uh, on his uh, ignominious exit, and uh, but not before giving the crowd what I'd call a—I think it's a, a two-arm, one-finger salute. Um, <laughs> And not, okay. and not just one, not just one. Like any great performer, he turned to each corner of the crowd to pay ah, his disrespects nice. for them and all. It was glorious. Um, so the point of that story, Eric, is that Washington needs, in some fashion, a legalized mobile sports betting in Seattle. It's a great sports town. I know it's very complicated because you're talking about numerous sovereign nations and all that. Um, but that fan base there, in many cases, is already betting illegally, and uh, what they came up with does little to address that issue. I'm sad to sad to wonder if uh, there might be some people listening to this right now who are saying, "What's a Seattle Supersonic?" Uh, yeah. It's possible that a, a few of the younger listeners uh, don't don't realize uh, that Seattle <laughs> used to have a basketball team. But True. I assume most most people remember. But yeah, I mean, the, the the lack of mobile is a huge deal. Washington joins states like New York and Mississippi that offer sports betting, but will attract a tiny fraction of the potential handle somewhere between, I don't know, maybe like 10 and 25% of what it could be. Uh, although just as we saw with Mississippi, which briefly considered an additional online bill this year, it is always possible to expand down mm -hmm. the road. So, you know, adding uh, adding retail-only sports betting for now, I guess it's a step in the right direction, if not one that really serves the public all that well or impacts the state coffers much. Um, and I'll, by the way, I'll note that the Washington law does not allow betting on in-state college teams, a detail the offshore sports books have to love hearing. Uh, that's another one. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, that's, that's another positive way of looking at it. They, they got something done and maybe they'll sort of see that they are leaving a lot on the table. And, you know, again, it's, it's difficult when you have sovereign nations involved, obviously, but um, there's money to be made and it can be shared. So I'm thinking there's a chance to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, staying on the subject of new states entering the sports betting fray, we have updates on a pair of states that passed laws in 2019 and are 
or at least were, planning spring launches. Washington, D.C. was expecting to well, launch. Is that, is that not a state, though? Uh, you're right. All right. A state district. I don't know how to. Is there a, there is there an all-encompassing term? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. State, All right. state and district. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, right. bear with us and roll, roll with it because <laughs> uh, uh, Washington, D.C. is one of them. Uh, they were expecting to launch sports betting this past Tuesday, March 31st. But with few sports to bet on, the D.C. lottery, which has a sports betting monopoly, decided not to rush it. We are revising our sports wagering launch strategy based on the current state of world events, a spokesperson told Sports Handle. Meanwhile, in Colorado, which definitely is a state, uh, the May 1st target launch date remains the target, whether there are sports to bet on or not. The sports wagering law declares that the state must be ready for sports betting by May 1st. So that's the plan, although it's possible no operators will choose to launch on that date. So two different approaches here. Does either one make more sense to you than the other, John? I'm not sure I like the D.C. decision here. I mean, this is a unique chance to do what we pray to God will be the softest sports betting launch of all time. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you go live and imagine if you find out there's some sort of a technical bug you didn't anticipate. Hmm. The impact would be so minimal. And now you've learned something vital down the road. I mean, you tinker with things for a few weeks. You get to be a little less nervous this summer or fall or whenever the sports world resumes spinning on its axis. So uh, that's a missed opportunity, I think. Um, Colorado, I would say, is unlucky. I mean, to pass a law with a provision that understandably didn't anticipate this sorry state of affairs. So <laughs> right. um, now this one, though, has private operators. So the free market can decide uh, what they're going to do. So. So I think they'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I get what's going on in Colorado plowing ahead. You may as well get all your ducks in a row and take care of business now, uh, you know, while maybe you have some time on your hands to take care of that business, uh, depending on what your job entails. There's no downside to getting things set up, even if operators might not bother to launch in the state May 1st. Although I kind of suspect some might. We know that FanDuel and DraftKings like to enter a market first when they can and attract those first deposits. And there will be Colorado bettors eager to make NFL futures bets or or dip a toe in some minor sport uh so yeah I, I say why not as far as colorado keeping things churning along um but at the same time i i kind of get the dc approach you you make a good point about how this would be a great uh, opportunity to soft launch test run things um but their whole sports betting law has been a mess from the start uh, I'm kind of okay with just letting it sit a while. Um, so I, I know that the, what I'm about to say isn't great for my credentials as a sports hot take artist, but I just kind of feel like a big old shoulder shrug emoji in terms of the DC approach here. Uh, yeah, I, I can understand that. But uh, just uh, like I said, I, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. All right. Our next news story. Uh, we touched uh, just now on how few sports there are to bet on, uh, but there are technically some sports to bet on these days, thanks to states giving approval on sports they'd never thought to allow before. In New Jersey, table tennis became an option for the first time last week, and it's doing well there and also catching on in Indiana, while in Nevada, a state that doesn't have to approve new professional sports, but that does have to approve esports. Betting on Counter-Strike Global Operations was approved last week. Uh, in the early days of the podcast, John, you referred to sports betting as a brave new world. I'm not sure what adjective to use for this version of the new world, uh, but here we are, Belarusian hockey, esports, and ping pong. Uh, do you see commissions getting even wackier than this, or is this about as off-brand as sports betting is going to get during this hiatus for all the major sports? 
Uh, yeah, I'm wincing as I listen to you, honestly. Um, <laughs> I, I can't really blame operators for wanting to have product, of course, and regulators want to cooperate and there's revenue to be had. And uh, I guess even gamblers who are betting in the middle of Russian or Ukrainian table tennis matches, uh, you know, many of those gamblers are in your state of Pennsylvania, Eric, by the way. Okay. Um, but really, I mean, it's a shame so few states have legal online poker because this would be a good time for gamblers. And I think most of them probably know how to play poker to some extent, even if they haven't played in many years, right. like myself. Um, you know, kind of brush up on their skills and learn an option that would be around long after the Belarus hockey finals are forgotten here in the U.S., you know. Right. Uh, the other option, you know, granted only a few remaining tracks have it right now, but uh, as this week's podcast guest Bill Finley notes, um, but again, that's a handicapping opportunity that will survive this apocalypse. So you can kind of gain a new skill that can be in your arsenal you know, a year from now when hopefully things are back to normal. And again, you're not going to be betting table tennis a year from now. <laughs> I pray to God. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like I was thinking of, uh, you know, whether it can get any more off-brand than what we're looking at right now. And uh, marble racing caught the nation's attention for a moment there, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't see legal betting markets on that popping up. There's, there's only so much you can do. Um, I do see probably betting on sports video game competitions picking up, mm-hmm. um, and. I know there was some discussion in uh, in one of our work Slack channels about this that I, I do think we might see a, a Tiger Phil type of thing. I know it's uh, you know they they've sort of floated some rumors. I think that could be done, and it would certainly attract a lot of betting right now. Um, I found it interesting that Nevada doesn't actually have to approve new sports as long as they are, in fact, professional sports that fit some criteria. Uh, sports books can offer those w- without asking for approval, whereas in New Jersey, it's a case-by-case basis and approvals are temporary, like uh, ping pong is approved through the end of April. Uh, then if the sports books feel the betters are interested, they'll reapply. So I wrote a little something about whether these sports are, are that are getting temporary approval will still be available for betting when the pandemic is over and the major sports return. And there's no clear answer, but my sense is that fans of betting on table tennis shouldn't count on being able to do so in perpetuity. It feels more like a temporary exception than some sort of new rule that's going to go forward. Yeah, I wonder what kind of a uh, off season they have to have. You know, the NFL obviously takes about six months off because uh, you know it's kind of a physical game and a lot of recuperation and training. Like table tennis, do you need uh, how much downtime do you need to rest your shoulder? I guess your rotator cuff. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it would seem like close to a year year round sport to me. <laughs> yeah, I was. I would say so. I, I... One of the less grueling sports. I maybe I'm not totally qualified to, to say that. I've never played at a professional level, but I've played enough amateur ping pong to know it can be a little bit of a workout. You can be moving a little, but uh, yeah, I don't think you need too much recovery time between matches. Yeah, I think it's all in the wrist. <laughs> uh, partially in the wrist. So maybe you know what? Uh, this is inspiring me uh, that uh, we should figure out a way to have some sort of virtual ping pong match, and then all of our listeners can bet on it. <laughs> What yeah, we can think? go back and forth on that if you like. We can play like the old video game Pong <laughs> on our computers somehow. Right. That was a thrill in 1975 <laughs> or whatever. We got that at home. But you, yep. you'd, you'd, it's hard to believe now, but trust me, it was a thrill. With six, yep. channels, with six channels on television, uh, you know, having a, a primitive video game was yes. pretty exciting. A little, a little tiny square moving from the side, one yes. side of your screen to the other was considered uh, high tech at the time. Yeah. Well, it was tennis, soccer, and hockey, which right. was pretty much the exact same thing on a primitive screen <laughs> but they they just made like the paddles a little little uh, more vertical and such you know so you could pretend that it was a different thing when really it's just the ball bouncing back and forth yeah i'll, so I'll take it over vibrating electric table football any day <laughs> i had yeah that too that was yep. uh, 
not pretty. Those uh, that, that never did work. It was uh, nope. it was infuriating because it it seemed like it would work, and then you set up, and then we had this flying wedge thing where you you had the ball carrier like he's, he's pinned in by his, his lineman basically, so he can't go too far left and right. And yeah, uh, those were the days. Yep. All right. Half the listenership is uh, saying "Okay, Boomer" to both of us right now. <laughs> exactly. We should move on. All right. For our final story, uh, we go to online poker, which remains a newsworthy topic in this time of limited gambling access. Poker Stars is rolling out major spring series in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey with the PA Scoop starting this Saturday, April 4th, and guaranteeing $2 million in prizes, while the NJ Scoop starts one week later, April 11th, and boasts a total guaranteed prize pool of $1.2 million. The PA version will consist of 100 tournaments, uh, really 50, but with a high buy-in and low buy-in edition of each, and the New Jersey version will have 96 tournaments, again, split into 48 highs and 48 lows. There's every reason to expect records to fall, particularly in Pennsylvania, where the main event has a $200,000 guarantee, which is about $20,000 higher than the current record prize pool for a Pennsylvania online poker tournament. Of course, the numbers could be even bigger if there was shared liquidity across straight state lines between the two poker star sites. But the PGCB's Doug Harbach told PennBets this week that it's not something on any radar right now. Uh, John, I won't ask you which NJ Scoop tournaments you're playing because I already know the answer is all of them. Uh, but I will ask you: Do you think New Jersey and Pennsylvania should be taking advantage of this online poker growth period to push for shared liquidity to happen sooner rather than later? Uh, well, I'll give you a little background here. I mean, I started writing about an online push for legal online poker in New Jersey almost a decade ago. I mean, it's so it's the same time frame frame for legal sports betting and passage of that statewide referendum in 2011, you know, now online poker, of course, gets to the finish line first. It launched here in 2013 and in, and in Delaware, ever the parenthetical, but uh, I'll yes. mention them. <laughs> um, but now we have 20 or more states with legal sports betting, not even two years after the Supreme Court unleashed the hounds on sports betting. And not only has online poker stalled, there isn't even a compact between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. It's mm-hmm. astounding. Yeah. You know, if, if California ever legalized online poker, guess what? They're so huge. They don't even need Need any of those states players if they don't want to bother. They're they're that big, uh, but New Jersey urgently needs the Pennsylvania players, and Pennsylvania kind of needs New Jersey as well. Uh, it's just they're they're just the right size. Two tiny states don't help each other even if they get together. A state as big as California doesn't need anyone else. These states are right in the sweet spot where when they come together, that you know magic happens, and it's free money for both state treasuries and such a convenience for some of their citizens. So you know make it happen, you two crazy kids. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, it. It felt pretty clear to me from uh, Harbach's quote to Brian Pempis that shared liquidity is not coming to Pennsylvania in 2020. Uh, And, you know, there's still the Wire Act drama playing out, which I'm sure is a Uh, factor in how slow they are to move. Um, Mm. It does sound from things I'm hearing like a second poker site in Pennsylvania could come in the next few months. So that would be a positive development for players to at least have another option besides just poker stars. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I will say I, I pretty much never play big online poker tournaments. I, I just don't have the time to commit in combination mm-hmm. with, I have a hard time telling my wife, this is what <laughs> I'm doing for the next five to 10 hours. I'm not available to do stuff with the kids. Uh, but uh, given current circumstances, it might be easier to buy myself some time and take a stab at a, a PA scoop event. Uh, I, 
personally practice extremely disciplined bankroll management. I will not enter a multi-table tournament for more than 2% of my bankroll. So without revealing the exact size of my online poker bankroll, I'll just say it will be one of the low buy-in events if I give it a try, not one of the highs. But uh, but I might carve out some tournament poker time in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so definitely expect Raskin wins PA Scoop tournament to be one of our news stories in the coming weeks on Gamble. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of picturing your wife signing you up for one of these and ordering you to play. So <laughs> get, get get out of my way for five to ten hours. Much. Yeah, could yeah. be. <laughs> well, that's that's what the dog is for too. Excuse for either one of us to get away from everybody else for a little while. Uh-huh. That sounds good. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. During this unprecedented period in global sports, a handful of niche sports are rising in prominence, and one that has generated its share of headlines, for better and worse, the last few weeks, is horse racing. Joining us now on the podcast to discuss a sport as closely connected to gambling as any is Bill Finley, an Eclipse Award-winning writer who has written about horse racing for the New York Post, the New York Daily News, the New York Times, and ESPN.com. A New Jersey resident, he currently covers all areas of the sport for the Thoroughbred Daily News. Bill, welcome to Gamble On. Oh, it's good to be with you guys. Yeah, you know, Bill, I, I feel like I have to explain even to a, a gambling-focused uh, audience that uh, there was a massive nationwide horse racing scandal that you know of. It was made public on March 11th. You know, more than two dozen industry insiders and leading trainers, others, um, were indicted on allegations of widespread doping of horses. And uh, I say I have to point that out because two days later, the NBA shut down its operations. And for many sports fans, it seems like the uh, indictments never happened. It kind of got swept under the rug, uh, and understandably so. Uh, now, you know, you've been covering the industry for so many decades, and there have always been rumors of this activity, you know, and, and, and some have gotten caught before. But I'm wondering, how does this scandal rank in the industry over the past few decades? There have been issues before, as I said. And was there anything in particular about the indictments or the identities of the people involved or allegedly involved that kind of struck you as you heard the news? Well, without going into hyperbole, I think it was the biggest scandal in the history of horse racing. Wow. The, uh, you know, we've seen trainers busted for various drug offenses in the past, but they've all been very minor um, things that warrant a 30 day suspension or something like that and really didn't get to the bottom of what was going on so far as doping of horses. We'd see more um, overages of therapeutic medications and that sort of thing. And in you know, many years I've been doing this, and as far as I can, I know, there's never been anything so wide-ranging and sweeping as what happened. And the reason why this got a lot further than any other racing investigations ever have is because you had the power of the FBI behind this. Yeah. Uh, horse racing itself uh, does a terrible job of policing itself and, and doesn't have a whole lot of tools to do so. For instance, the guys that were caught up in this, uh, most of them were caught uh, with their hand in the cookie jar because of wiretaps and that sort of thing. And there's no, racing doesn't have the power to do that sort of thing. So the federal government comes in, they have an investigation, which ironically didn't start, as they said, involving uh, doping of racehorses. They, they said they were looking into something else. I believe it was money laundering. Mm-hmm. And then this fell into their lap from some of the conversations they were obviously recording and, and listening into with the participants. Um, the two main guys that were caught, uh, Jorge Navarro and Jason Service, uh, nobody and I mean nobody was surprised that they were caught. They were widely believed to be cheaters. They were trainers whose um, accomplishments were simply too good to be true. And 
when it came down that they were caught, everybody said the same thing. Yeah, of course it was these two. Mm. But, um, you know, how will racing uh, move forward from this? I, I, I think you made a good point. It, it's it's amazing that I just said this is the biggest scandal in horse racing yeah. history. And uh, about three weeks later, we barely even talking about it because of the coronavirus. So, I mean, nobody wanted to see the coronavirus come, obviously, but in, in some respects, it is taking uh, racing's ugliest side and, and sort of pushing it into the background. Yeah, I think the, the toughest thing for me in, in reading the indictments, and there were a couple of subsequent ones after the main one, um, is one of the, I think, the best defenses horsemen have had. Obviously, the PETA group, uh, people for the treatment of ethical treatment of animals and other uh, concerned groups, you know, have, have been worried about the horses. But the horsemen have always you know, been able to say, I think quite plausibly, you know, it's not just that they want to take care of the horse because, uh, you know, for financial reasons and they, there's no reason to, to, uh, do anything to harm them, but also that they, they're generally fond of the horses. That's why they're in the industry. And that's true for, you know, I'm sure the vast majority of people, but in the, in the wiretaps, you know, with these allegations, you have horsemen kind of, uh, making jokes about a horse that died or multiple horses that died. And, you know, oh, where did you hide them? And like, it just seems so callous that that kind of, uh, that shocked me a little bit. I guess I'm, maybe I'm being naive. No, I, I don't think you were. And that sort of shocked me as well, even though I said, you know, I, I was very suspicious of, of these two trainers that were involved in it. Um, but yeah, that was the, really the ugliest part of the whole thing and you know, of a, the ugliest part of a very ugly story. And you, you on the wiretaps, uh, you know, first of all, remember, it was more than just Navarro and service. There was 27 people involved mm-hmm. and a couple other names came out later. Um, you know, these guys were making jokes about killing horses. And matter of fact, there was a harness trainer by the name of Renee Allard who was mm-hmm. involved in this. And uh, it wasn't him on the wiretap, but it was two people that were involved in this operation, supplying them with drugs. And they made a joke about the Allard death camps. I mean, you can't get more callous and cruel than that. And that really did uh, surprise me. Look, I'm not condoning, you know, doping horses to, to win races, but, you know, that, that goes up to a certain point. But then when you talk about these horses dying from this and then making jokes about it, I mean, you've got to be a very warped uh, individual. And, and I, I think this is a very awful human being uh, to do that. And, um, you know, John, you're right. You know, these are, these are bad apples. They probably uh, represent one half of 1% of the sport. But, you know, to think that these people are out there making jokes about this thing is just disgusting. Yeah. yeah and if, if these allegations are proven, uh, you know, I think you're looking at some uh, serious penalties, too, because, uh, as I said, the, as we were, we're talking about, the allegations are really strong. So um, if it's proven, uh, uh, that's going to be a, a big issue for all all 26. Really. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously innocent until proven guilty and all that. But if, if you read the indictment, they've got these guys you know, dead to rights. I, I mean, the, the the government has has put together a case where, you know, maybe they will, these guys will be able to plea bargain a little bit. Most of them are looking at five year sentences for something called misbranding, which uh, because uh, well, that basically is is mislabeling drugs to to uh, be able to hide what the real effect is. And on the surface, it doesn't seem that serious when there's, you know, charges about fixing horse races and animal cruelty and everything. But and there's no law against, uh, you know, there's it begins racing regulations, but there's no federal law out there saying, you know, you cannot drug a racehorse. So they had to get them on sort of this odd charge, you know, Al Capone getting the, get busted for um, tax evasion type of thing. But you, know, you look at this; these guys are, are first of all, they're they're done 
so far as, as their history in the sport. Uh, there is no chance, and I say this, you know, someone who's very skeptical uh, of the horse racing industry and, and, and its inability to police itself and get rid of the bad apples, but there is zero chance that any of these people will ever have anything to do with horse racing again the rest of their lives. I mean, they couldn't get a job parking cars in the parking lot. Um, I mean, literally. Um, and, and they're going to jail. I mean, they're going to prison. Um, I don't know for how long. But you look at this, and the, the case is ironclad. And, and damn it, I'm glad these guys are going to prison. I wish they could go for prison for a lot more than, than the, the, the amount of time they're looking at. All right. Well, shifting from from that scandal to the crisis that we're all dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of sports halted on March 11th, March 12th, as the COVID-19 spread hit kind of a, an early tipping point. Horse racing, meanwhile, has continued on at, at quite a few tracks. Uh, as someone who's covered this industry as long as you have, Bill, any surprises that horse racing would be one of the last holdouts in sports, or, or was the industry's reaction fairly predictable? No, and, and I don't think, uh, you know, first of all, obviously the optics of it, you know, this world crisis is going on. Every single sport in the world is shut down. And, and first of all, most racetracks have closed. Okay. I believe it's now six that are still running. Um, the, the main one would be Gulfstream Park down in Florida. I mean, don't really look good on the surface, but you have to understand the way horse racing works. And its argument, and I think it's a good argument, is that all the employees, this is not like a Macy's. You can't tell your employees to just go, you know, ride up the virus at home, you know, uh, you know, stay away from, from work and stay away from people. They have to have the employees come to work to take care of the horses. You know, obviously, these horses have to be fed, they have to be exercised, they have to be walked, et cetera. Right. So, you know, trainers have not cut back on their numbers of employees. The, the people that take care of the horses are coming to work every day. So if they're coming to work, why not just extend it to that? Not only will they take care of the horses in the morning, but a, a skeleton crew will take care of the horses in the afternoon and race them. And believe me, the tracks that are doing this are not doing it to profit. Uh, matter of fact, you know, no, some of the, the betting totals at some of the tracks have been pretty good, but they're not making millions of dollars off this. What they're trying to do is they're trying to keep the economic engine of horse racing going as best you can. Because just like all the other businesses in the country that have shut down, if you don't allow these people the right, or they don't give them an avenue to make any money, the ramifications are going to be felt all through the industry. Uh, they're going to have to lay off their employees, which are low-level workers that with uh, meager wages to begin with. What is going to happen to those people, you know, so far as unemployment, even homelessness and things like that? And also, what's going to happen to the horses? And, you know, at some point, if these horses can't race for any money, you know, what economic value do they have? How are people going to deal with that situation? And, you know, again, one of the uglier sides of horse racing it's gotten much better, but is the fact that you know some people will do away with their unwanted horses by sending them to slaughterhouses, and you know could that happen in mass if, if racing is shut down all over the country? Uh, yeah, it probably could. So I actually applaud the racetracks for continuing to run that have. There's been no serious outbreaks of the coronavirus in any of the racing communities that we know of. One exception is New York, where. The, the situation is worse anywhere in the country, and there have been, uh, last count, six people among the backstretch workers in New York and Belmont Park that have been affected by this. They're not running right now. But, uh, you know, I hope that these tracks continue to go on, and I wish a couple others would try as well. Or actually, I shouldn't say that. They want to race. It's, they have to get government approval to continue to race. And they are making the argument that it does make sense for us to keep going, and the safety of people involved is not being put at any terrible danger. Okay, yeah. interesting. 
Yeah, uh, you know, Bill, the, the harness racing community, as you know all too well, in New York and New Jersey has been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. Uh, you know, Yonkers Raceway, Freehold Raceway, Meadowlands Racetrack, they're all having this hit particularly close to home. Uh, deaths of several members of the Fusco family, a uh, big harness racing family, and uh, being a tr particularly tragic part of that. Um, two brothers, a sister, and their mother, at least, and there's others in danger in the family. Um, can you maybe explain to, uh, you know, gambling-minded people who aren't, don't follow horse racing as closely, uh, you know, how intertwined the horsemen are uh, emotionally, not only to each other, but also to uh, each other's families? Yeah, I mean, it's a very insular world, both the thoroughbreds and the standardbred racing. And, you know, they're, they're not necessarily very sophisticated people. Um, you know, they, all they know is the life on the racetrack. Um, that's all, most of these people, that's all they've ever done. Many of them come from racing families. That that's what their fathers did and their grandfathers did and that sort of thing. So as you said, there was um, the death of this trainer, Carmine Fusco, and also a, a rep, horseman's representative at Yonkers Raceway, ironically enough, named John Brennan, yep. uh, no relation, uh, yeah. uh, also died of the coronavirus. So, you know, that, that, that harness racing, very, very strong. Um, I don't believe that, at least in Fusco's case, uh, his his getting the the virus had anything to do with his being uh, intermingling with the horses or the other horse people. Mm. Uh, not sure about the same about Brennan, who was uh, used to go mm. to Yonkers just about every night and and, and kind of just uh, you know meet with his people and he, he represented the trainers and the owners and that sort of thing. So mm. yeah, you know you see that happen and look, I, I mean everything is a, is a crisis, but um, and a catastrophe and, and a tragedy when somebody loses their life for this thing. But you know certainly it was uh, something that hit the harness business qu quite hard. Yeah, and and uh, you know, aqueduct is what you're mentioning as far as uh, some some issues there with a backstretch worker who tested positive and, and so on. Um, can you think of any changes to the way racing is conducted that would make a big difference in making things safer for everyone involved in the sport, or is it just you know ev everybody everywhere is is getting it? So you know, horse racing uh, it maybe is not any any more uh, dangerous than you know going to a supermarket these days. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a good way of putting it. I um, mean, you know, I went to the supermarket yesterday. And I, was, man, I was nervous to do so, yeah. but, but mm -hmm. I had to do so and had to get some food. Um, no, I don't, I, you know, I mean, they're doing all the right things. I mean, they won't, you can't get near uh, other people. You know, first of all, the, the, the amount, of, they won't let anybody in unless somebody is essential to the horse and, and racing the horse and getting in there. So that's basically a trainer, maybe one backstretch personnel. And of course, like the jockey deal with the owners go to the racetrack at these places anymore. Um, jockey agents aren't allowed. So, and, and if you want to get anywhere near other people, get into the paddocks, these places, you have to have your temperature taken. If it's over 96.8 or whatever, um, you know, they tell you to go home. So they're doing all the right things. I mean, you know, they're practicing social distancing as much as they can, but again, it's this odd thing where, you know, can this business actually operate and, and not put people in extra danger? And that's what, what people are trying to, to, to deal with. And the other thing, too, is that you have to remember that this would have happened 35, 40 years ago. No tracks would want to run because you don't have people in the stands. And that's where all racing's business came from back in the era of the 70s and 80s and whatnot. People going to the racetrack, making their bets at the racetrack. It was really the only way you had to do it. And New York City OTB came. That started to change the whole way people bet on racing. Now it's something like 92% of all money bet on racing comes from people off track, primarily people that just bet on their computers now. So, so far as the you know money coming in from gambling, um, it's not going to take any sort of hit whatsoever, or maybe just a small hit by not allowing people on uh, at the tracks. So, you know, racetrack can open up, they can run the show. And at the end of the day, 
They can handle several million dollars. In case of Gulfstream Park, they might handle 30 or $40 million on a day like the Florida Derby. And, you know, that money goes back into purses and the purses go, go back into the trainer's pockets. They go back in the owner's pockets. The trainers pay their bills. They pay their backstretch help. And the, you know, the world, the universe of horse racing continues on relatively unchanged. But again, we're now talking six tracks. You know, this time of year, there'll probably be 22, 23 running. So, and that doesn't even include harness tracks where there's only one track. When I say six tracks, I'm talking about thoroughbred. There's only one harness track that's running right now, a track out in California. So that shows you to the, to the lengths that uh, racing has had to go to, to shut down. Hmm. Well, that, that talk of how the sport has evolved over recent decades and technology's played a role and, and all that leads perfectly into the last question that we, we want to ask you, Bill. Uh, looking beyond the pandemic, once, once we're clear of this and back to something resembling normal life, where do you see horse racing going over the next five to 10 years and what innovations can fans look forward to? Uh, you know, for example, fixed odds betting is coming to Monmouth Park. Is that something you see gaining popularity in the U.S.? Yeah, it could be. I mean, there's little things that can happen here and there, but uh, you know, I can't be bullish on the future of horse racing, considering you know what's happened over the last many years, and it can you know how it just becomes less and less popular all the time. Um, the, the total money bet on racing is going down, not up. Uh, you have the the scandal with the race fixing, but a, a bigger problem than that because it, uh, gamblers are still going to bet, even if they think the races are fixed, they don't care. I mean, they they, they just bet on they bet on it and try to figure out who's cheating, which is really what a lot of gamblers were doing um, before this came up. But the bigger threat is from the animal rights activists. Um, we didn't mention, but uh, people will probably know that there was a terrible problem in 2019 with this inordinate number of horses breaking down and dying at Santa Anita. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, you know, animal rights activists are really breathing down racing back, uh, breathing down their necks to, uh, you know, and, and threatening to, to, to put things on the ballots in places like California to close it down and sports betting. Um, you know, I think sports betting is going to prove to be a, a very detrimental for horse racing because up until um, PASPA was uh, struck down by the Supreme court, uh, betting on horses was the only sporting event you could legally bet on online and now you open up uh, the world of, of online betting to sports, which is vastly more popular than the, the big four sports and college football, college basketball, et cetera, vastly more popular than horse racing. Uh, so I think that's going to really eat into horse racing's total business. Now, the game's not going anywhere. It's probably going to contract. But, um, you know, where's it going to be 10 years from now? My guess would be really uh, in a worse place than it was. Uh, you know, in let's say 2019, before anybody heard of the coronavirus or the indictments came out against these trainers for, for doping. Hmm. Well, I, I uh, have covered boxing on the side for the last 20 plus years. So when you started into that answer of, uh, you know, it's 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 not suddenly going to become more popular that you just hope it doesn't become less popular. Uh, I, I know where you're coming from because boxing has been in the same boat for a very long time. Yeah, a lot of parallels between the two sports, but yeah. um you know, uh, you know, and then it's a changing world. Um, you know, horse racing flourished at a time where it was the only game you could bet on whatsoever. The only form of legal gambling outside of Las Vegas for, you know, decades and decades and decades. And, you know, before the explosion of football, before the explosion of, of the NBA in college sports and whatnot, I mean, you can still go back in the New York times and look at a, a front page of a sports section from the forties or something. And horse racing is covered like baseball. Uh, you know, all over the front page, there were results all over the pace, um, you know, recaps of all the big races. And, you know, now it, it's, you know, just a niche sport that is really, um, you know, most of the, the general public barely even knows exists. Yep. 
All right. Well, this has been, uh, as, a, as a non-horse racing uh, guy myself, this has been uh, both entertaining and educational, which is what we strive for with our guests. So uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast, Bill. It was great talking to you. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, Bill. There's nothing to update with our bankroll this week and nothing much to place sports bets on. So, uh, as we said would sometimes be the case this spring, we will skip the bankroll segment, which means that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Bill Finley. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling, and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Podcast or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, Eric, some good news here. Um, now, our 37th annual R- Rotisserie League baseball auction was supposed to take place on Sunday. Um, this is well-level gambling, Eric, with a top prize of around $500 for only six months of effort. So it's big stakes. <laughs> right. um, it's also an all AARP card-carrying ownership league, <laughs> ranging from 55 to 77. So, uh, you know, our streak of 36 straight in-person auctions was clearly not going to happen, uh, even with not like six, but 60 feet of social distancing in a rented airport hangar or something. <laughs> right. Not happening. Um, so we elected to postpone the auction until the season starts, uh, if it starts. Um, but a few ANSI owners got an idea to have a serpentine draft of all the National League players, you know, rolling out maybe around a day or so because we have plenty of time. And uh, that was a fun idea. But one unintended consequence was we all tracked each other down last weekend, except for one owner who's had some major health issues. Mm. And obviously we're alarmed. Um, Well, on Wednesday, he contacted one of our owners and apologized for missing emails and texts, which sounds impossible probably if you're uh, under 50. But um, it happened. It happened. It does happen. And he certainly didn't want to stress any of us. But I would just say for our older listeners here, uh, for those whose parents fit that category, anybody in at-risk groups, um, Please reach out to all the friends and family you can think of uh, to signal the all clear sign. I mean, nobody wants to be intrusive, but people do worry. So, uh, you know, we're thinking of all of you and uh, we all feel so relieved to hear from you. So, um, you know, put that on your uh, to do list this week. And uh, with that, until next time, everybody uh, gamble on, but uh, on horse racing. Maybe.